We are reading Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. This is what Holy Scripture says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Okay, in Newfoundland, we talk to each other. Good morning, everyone. That's better. The last time I was here, you weren't in this gym. You were in a much hotter place, I believe, downstairs. Um, it's a glorious privilege to be here. I uh, really thank the Lord for the friendship and the mentorship that your senior pastor, Brother Paul, has been to me personally, to everything I've done when I was pastoring in Prince Edward Island and now back in my home province in Newfoundland. Of course, thank you to Patrick and Pastor Steve as well. And of course, Tim and Aileen are very good friends of mine and they've been such a blessing to me. I do bring you greetings from Calvary Baptist Church in St. John's, Newfoundland. And uh, at the risk of my cheesy dad, dad joke here at the beginning, yes, indeed, a wise man from the East has come and been sent to preach to you this morning. <laughs> Sometimes I want to record that. My kids make fun of me with my cheesy jokes. But the truth is, I'm actually a trophy of God's grace, proof that God uses the weak, and for that I'm internally grateful. As Pastor Patrick said, I'm the lead elder of Preaching and Vision at Calvary Baptist Church in St. John's, Newfoundland, and it's a glorious privilege. And I am the director of Mile One Mission. And if I can say at the beginning of this, because it builds into our passage, I am and we are at, in Newfoundland desperate for you to pray for us and be aware of the need of the gospel in my city and my province. Today, we are probably statistically the least evangelized city in our country, at likely right around one half of 1%. There's a quarter of a million people in St. John's, and I think you'd be very fortunate if you could find 15 to 1,600 legit Christians in that city. There are only 16 churches in the entire city that would even claim to be on any level of the spectrum of evangelical. And so I'd ask of you to pray that we would see more churches planted and that God would be with us. We've experienced some wonderful miracles in the last even 30 to 60 days, as believe it or not, because of some of the scandals in Roman Catholicism, just recently God blessed us with a 16,500 square foot church that was a Roman Catholic church that they sold to us at probably 25 cents on the dollar of what it's worth. And for that, we're very grateful. Um, it's an honor to be with you. A little bit about me. I am married to my childhood sweetheart, and I don't say that as a cliche. I met her when I was five years old. I threw rocks at her, so if you are single and you're wondering a great way to tell a girl you like her, you can give it a go. We went on our first date when we were 16. We got married when I was 20, and we just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary this year. We have three kids, and we now have four grandkids, and we are blessed beyond measure. I've been pastoring about half my life, and by God's grace, it is my desire to end my life 
to see God bring church plants and revival to Newfoundland and Labrador. And with that, if you take your Bibles again and go with me to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, I want us to think about Jesus' example to mission. We're beginning another Christmas season, the end of 2022, and yet we still seem to be dealing with things like COVID and RSV and flu season, politics and tension and all these things. But here we are in our country. What's it going to be like for us, for you, for me, in our various cities, in our context? And if I could be so bold, I think I'm talking to a largely Christian audience. Let me talk a little bit about some of the traditions we have. Missions conferences. Christian camps, retreats for teens and singles, for marrieds and families, Christian getaways. I've been around Christianity since I was five years old. I went through all of these types of things. I went to a youth group, a Christian school, all of them. And I'll be honest, through my teen years and my young adult years, even a little bit now that I'm in my 50th year, sometimes the cynicism of me creeps up and I say, why have these things? What's their purpose? What do they accomplish? In all of these types of settings, we'll hear that great Steve Green song, right people need the Lord. We usually hear sermons and challenges and updates and pitches. Isaiah 6 is sure to be preached. Here am I, Lord, send me. I very rarely, though, hear the second half of that chapter ever preached at missions conferences when Isaiah is told, yes, you can come and no one will hear you or listen. That's usually not the way to find new missionaries. We hear things about the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Hear things about going along in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth in Acts 1, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. Our emotions are challenged. We hear stories and biographies, calls to action, to serve and to give. And of course, we want to have prayers for revival. Now, don't misunderstand me, none of which is bad or wrong in and of itself. But I think one of the problems we're experiencing as we come out of COVID and we look to the new future, that much of the evangelical church, when it comes to all this Christian stuff we do, we can be in danger of, well, familiarity can sometimes breed contempt, or at least complacency. Listen to these words that the preacher of of the sermon in Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us collectively run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how are we going to do this? Looking unto Jesus. Why? For what reason? Because Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And here is the motive. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Grace Fellowship, I want you to realize that this time together, I want you to do something that maybe you are assuming you do. But since I'm new to you and you're new to me, let me ask it again. For the next 30 or 35 minutes, would you ask God to do something different? Nothing spectacular, nothing big, but can we, you and I, simply say, Father God, would you speak to me now through your word? Show me one thing about you. Show me something about me, something that will change me into more of your image. And with that in mind... As you look at these verses in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, I want to ask you some questions. Here are my questions for you as we set up this passage. Since you're new to me and I'm new to you, if I was going to go and survey all of you, or I was going to survey your friends in your neighborhood, or the people you work with, and I ask these questions, what kind of person is so-and-so? What kind of person are you? How would you describe yourself? How do you think others would describe you? If you're here today and you'd say, Steve, listen, I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. I love all those terms, but I am always tempted to ask, 
What do you mean when you say that? What does that look like in real life? In Newfoundland, we only know one way. That's blunt. And so let me ask you right from the start, who is Jesus to you? Really? I'm not talking some theological abstract answer. I mean, when you're dealing with life, bills to be paid, the tensions that we've seen through COVID, political upheaval, unknowns, marriage struggles, family setbacks, all the things that we do. Who is Jesus to you? Would the definition that you give match the life you live? How important is he? How has Jesus changed you? Changed your thinking, your heart, your attitude, your outlook on this life and the life to come. How has Jesus in your life changed what you want? We are now in the month where we will spend more money that we don't have on more things that we don't need simply so we can capture a few moments of nostalgic bliss on on Sunday morning this year of December 25th only to be followed up in January of the greatest month of anxiety, stress, and depression of the whole year. But how has Jesus then changed what you want, how you spend, how you save, how you give, how you use money? How how has Jesus changed the way you see people? How has Jesus changed the way you forgive others? How has Jesus changed the way you see yourself? So, whoever you are in this church, married, single, students, older, younger, I want you to listen to God's word. What we do, why we do it, and how we do it are all equally important to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say that again. What we do, why we do it, and how we do it are all equally important to the gospel. How is the so-called Christian life for you? Hard? Easy? Are you tired of trying or feel like you're pretending a little bit? Do you feel like you have to work hard to manufacture the right thoughts, the right attitudes? Is reading your Bible dreadful and mundane? Where do you spend most of your time? And however you would answer all this, believe it or not, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 10, verse 4, is a passage just for you and I. Matthew, who writes this, and never forget when you read Matthew, he's the tax collector turned disciple. He is the Benedict Arnold of this group of 12. He's the traitor. He's inspired of God to write this biography of Christ to Christians in churches somewhere between 20 and 40 years after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. So now think about it. The church efforts are well underway. The gospel is spreading all through the Roman Empire. And quite literally, thousands of people are coming to Christ. So why is Matthew writing? He's reminding the church, and we need this reminder today, of who saved them, of who they serve, and who Jesus is. Now, this is my controversial premise as we get into this, and I believe I can run faster scared than you mad, so I'm going to say this. I would propose to us all this morning a Christian, a real Christian, is not someone who needs to be convinced to obey Christ to serve Christ, and certainly not to pray. A real Christian is not someone who needs to be convinced or persuaded to tell others of Christ and his gospel. In fact, I encourage you to read the gospels in the New Testament, and you'll quickly discover there's no attempt to convince Christians to serve Christ. But it is filled with the constant reminder to Christians, to you and I, to remember who you are in Christ. Even in Revelation, in the church, the letter to the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, but I have this against you, you have abandoned. By the way, get that right, they left. They didn't lose it. They didn't lose their love for God like we lose keys. They left it. 
They literally walked away from the love they had at first. And this was Jesus' remedy. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So our passage where Matthew writes this gospel biography to us is that we might remember. Remember, be reminded of who Christ is and who Jesus Christ and what he is doing. So literally, it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. You've heard this many times. By reading this Bible, by studying it, applying it, memorizing it, we will be reminded of Jesus' authority, of his power, of his deity, of his humanity, of his gospel, his mercy, his grace, and his pronouncement of holiness and judgment. And to set up this, in Matthew chapters 1 to 4, Jesus' authority is announced is authoritatively announced in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Jesus authoritatively speaks. Now in verses 8, 9, and 10, he actually authoritatively acts. And I love how Matthew does this. He's authoritatively announced, he authoritatively speaks, and now he authoritatively acts. But in our passage, we're going to see a unique thing that, we've ne- that we, Matthew wants us to see. Notice, number one, Jesus' example of compassion. And when Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Did you see that? Did you notice how Matthew describes Jesus' life and activities? Now, I want you to consider with me what happened up to this point. All of the things that he has been through in his, in his being announced in his life and the beginning of his life to where he speaks that great sermon on the mount. Josephus tells us that at the time of Jesus, there were roughly 200 cities and villages in, in Galilee. There's debate about it, but the population was estimated to be somewhere between 300,000 to 1 million souls. Now, think about that. Think about the demands, the response of the people, the response of the Pharisees, the response of the disciples, and the response of the so-called disciples. Think about the physical toll that would take, the mental toll, the stress, and the strain. If Jesus' ministry was somewhere between 18 to 36 months, which at most is 1,080 days, then Jesus was dealing with their healing potentially up to 600 people per day. Can you imagine how long-suffering was Jesus? Is it any wonder that the emotion attributed most to Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is compassion? How dedicated was he? How patient? How kind? I don't know if you know this or not, but miracles are not as common as you think. In fact, if you carefully study from Genesis to Malachi and from Acts to Revelation, there's only about 140 recorded miracles in the entire Bible outside the Gospels. By far the vast number happen within the Gospels themselves. One commentator put it like this, Jesus virtually eliminated disease from Galilee for a period of time. Can you quantify that level of compassion? But let me ask you and I a question then as we barrel into the Christmas season and time of Advent. How is your compassion? Is that how you would be described? Is that how I would be described? Think how much Jesus has already given, but then think about how much more he'll already give. He'll give. He sees the people in our passage as leaderless, as sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and bullied, bruised and helpless. Sheep, quite literally, without a shepherd. He sees them as dead in sin and blinded by Satan. The masses are adrift. They move from one thing to the other, trying to find happiness and peace, but never finding it. Jesus sees the true effects of sin. That is why he cried, my friends, before Lazarus' grave. He knows all too well what the end game will be for all those who are left in this condition. Here's my question. Do we? I am driven by the 250,000 people in my city when I think about the fact that if God comes back today, more than 248,000 of them are condemned to hell. 
You, in your corner here, I heard your pastor pray for the greater Toronto area, which I've been told last is 8 million souls. How many of them don't know Jesus Christ? And yet, why is it that too many evangelical Christians, we are so busy yelling at the world instead of praying for them and crying out to them to know Christ? Where's our compassion? It always amazes me when I see Christians. It seems to be the new uh, modus operandi of the evangelical churches. We're yelling at the government and at culture for all the ways they turn from and blaspheme and run from God. But the last time I checked in Ephesians, people who don't know Jesus are dead in their sin. And so to me, in my Newfoundland mind, yelling at the world would be no different than if I went to a funeral and yelled at the person in the coffin to get up. Dead people do what dead people do. Our calling is not to look at them as an opponent as a theological debate, as an argument to be won. I am not shocked when I see the world diving headfirst into pleasure and significance and control because this life is as good as it gets, but not for Christians. Jesus sees these people. So what we need to be reminded about from Jesus' compassion, or stated another way, what are the dangers or threats to our compassion? In other words, why don't we pray more? Why don't we share the gospel more, sacrifice for mission more, obey the Great Commission more? And one of the reasons might be this, a tired perspective. I know you've heard this name, but one of our great Canadian theologians, D.A. Carson, he writes in one of his books about a time when he was finishing up his master's degree, and he says this, anyone who is engaged in Christian ministry knows that emotional burnout is a great danger. And when it takes place, genuine ministry is traded for mere professionalism. The high goals with which we began may dissolve into the acid bath of sheer need. We become more proficient, but we also can become more mechanical and less compassionate. He gives the example of being feeling overwhelmed by his studies and a friend of his decided to take him up towards Muskoka for a weekend away. They knew of a lake up there and they were going to have a quiet time and Carson describes it that as he needed this break and he says, to my horror, when I got there, there was a group of about 300 teenagers already there. And Carson, in only the Carson way he can, describes how these, the alcohol was flowing and the music was pounding. And, and of course, in his classic nerdy theological way, uh, Carson says, you know, and the, the deeds of the flesh were well on display. I would have stuffed Carson in a locker in high school. I'm just confessing my sin. He says, deeply disappointed that my evening's relaxation was being shattered by this raucous party. I was getting ready to cover my disappointment by moral outrage. I turned to Ken to unload the venom, but stopped as I saw him staring at the scene with a faraway look in his eyes. And then he said rather softly, Don, high school kids, what a mission field. Carson says, in one sense, he had seen and heard exactly what I did. In another sense, he had not, we had not seen and heard the same things at all. The difference was not in the objective reality, but in his compassion. And D.A. Carson says, I had much to learn. When was the last time you watched the news, watched Twitter, saw the Facebook posts, and instead of having this sense of moral superiority just sensed an overwhelming compassion. We claim to be little Christs. Are we? Another warning against compassion, if it's not a tired perspective, it would be this, laziness or complacency. Let me ask you now to be honest. I've confessed my sin of probably being a bit of a bully to Mr. Carson if we were in high school together. How many of you here are willing to admit that you've ever watched the TV show, The Amazing Race? Put your hand up nice and high so everybody else can see the confession of your sin. Thank you very much. When that 
thing first came out, it was something that my wife and I watched together. I am a typical Newfoundland male. I do not watch TV. I surf. So my wife and I have found out and discovered that we cannot, as part of our marriage, watch television together because I watch eight programs at a time and she watches one. But this was something we could watch. Now, not to break any bubbles here or burst any bubbles, but you realize there is no such thing as reality TV. It is all staged, okay? And you know this because even in the amazing race, you know, you always know when something exciting or mysterious or sad is going to happen because you just got to listen to the background music. And part of this episode was when the racers were going and they had to go to India. And the music starts and they all get out of the airport and they run out and they are met by quite literally thousands and thousands of children who are begging. And they have to wade through them to get to their cabs. And the music, the violin is just playing. And you're so sad. And every one of them, even some crying, these teams said, I, my heart was broken at the poverty and the desperation. And yet, not one of those couples stopped to do anything because they were racing to get two million bucks. See, I would submit they had sympathy, but not compassion. And the problem in too much of our Canadian church is we are a sympathetic bunch, but are we a compassionate bunch? For disciples, for Christians, for followers of Jesus, rest is very different from vacation. One commentator says, Christians may never treat the relationship between ministry and rest in the same way that the world treats the relationship between work and holidays. Many see vacations as the end or purpose of work and even of life itself. They work, their work earns a holiday. They deserve a vacation. In other words, compassion in ministry is not so much the characteristic of a certain type of personality as the characteristic of a person with a certain set of priorities. Are you a little lazy or complacent in your compassion? Have you confused your sympathetic attitude and thought that was compassion. See, sympathy is, I feel bad for you. Compassion is, I want to do something to help you. What are we doing? And notice how Jesus wants his disciples, because number two, then we see Jesus' command to pray. He sees these, these people as harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then notice in verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So there's his premise. Here's the reality. And then he says, this should be your response. Therefore, verse 38, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He looks at his disciples in his compassion, wants them to have compassion and says, here's where it needs to start. You need to start praying. So Grace Fellowship, are you following the example of Christ's compassion? And you will know if you are by are you desperately praying for God to stir Christians in this country to reach the people of this country. He, in the compassion he has is now put into the heart of all those who are truly his. And when we have it, it drives us to our knees and it drives us to prayer and to him. And why would we pray? Because only God can save. Amen? And we are desperate for him to save. And it's not a mistake that Jesus uses the word harvest. He wants his disciples, he wants you and I today to see people, human people made in the image of God. He wants us to see them as shepherdless sheep, condemned, hell-bound, lost, searching, hurting, doubting, denying God, refusing to listen, angry, questioning people, and it's not just a harvest, it's a plentiful harvest. Have I not just described Canada today? Is that not people that you interact with today? Everybody I meet is hurting or angry, wondering why or bitter. Jesus is saying to these men and to you and I, there's a large number of people in some sense simply waiting to hear the gospel of the kingdom. So what are we going to do? 
set up more programs, make more ministries. No, we are to pray. And we are to pray specifically for something. We don't ask God just to save people. Notice what he says. We ask God to provide the means for saving people. And that, my friends, is us. Ta-da! It's you and me. We need to pray for God to move among us. Have you ever wondered in your prayer meetings how often we say, Lord, stir up our country. When was the last time you said, Lord, stir up me? Stir up my church. Stir up my community uh, uh, small group. Stir up my leaders, my elders. Stir, Stir up my spouse, my kids. We need to ask God to move amongst us to change our heart and our thinking and our priorities and our mindset. we got to ask God to help us see the lost, to stand before God and pray, to intercede for this city, to cry out for moms and dads. Hey, listen, parents, who will pray for your children if you won't? Husband and wife, who's going to pray for your spouse if you won't? It is shocking to me how many couples I counsel and I always ask them three questions and one of them is, when was the last time you prayed with your spouse for your spouse? And the looks of utter bewilderment shock me. And I ask you, husbands, when was the last time you prayed for your wife with your wife where she heard you Pray for her. And better yet, when did you last time, husbands, you asked your wife, how can I pray for you? And then you prayed for her, with her. I've been around church, as I said, basically my entire life, and I am so sick and tired of all the Christianese and the language and the cliches. I'm tired when people tell me, I'm praying for you, brother, because my gut reaction says prove it. It's so easy to let that just roll out. We have to ask God to change our hearts. So we go with the gospel when we are compassion-fueled and we are driven by passionate, urgent prayer. But now watch with me. The last step to going with the gospel, are you ready for this? Number three, Jesus' commission to go. Jesus' commission to go. So Jesus compassionately sees these people as sheep without a shepherd. Then he looks at his disciples and says, you need to pray that God will send forth laborers. And I think the disciples were like, yeah, let's have a prayer meeting. We'll do it for days. We'll get the small groups going. And then notice it rolls into chapter 10 and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority and he sends them. And I think to the shock of everybody, we need to realize, do you know what Jesus is doing? He says, I want you to pray. Oh, and by the way, you will be the answer to your own prayers. I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers. And by the way, that's you. How often do we pray, God, send forth laborers? And do you realize that often God wants you to go, that's you. The call to prayer is central, but it's not everything. As one, as Paul said, faith without works is dead. I love what one man said. So also is prayer without mission. Let me say that again. As faith without works is dead, so also is prayer without mission. It's funny, isn't it? Do you remember what Jesus told those brothers, James and John, back in John chapter 4, verse 19? Remember, you know it. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. David Platt says something about this. He says, notice in his invitation that Jesus does not tell his disciples what he will call them to do, but rather Jesus tells them what he will cause them to do. The command he would give them, and by the way to you and I, could only be accomplished by the work that he would do in them and us. So in other words, as these disciples followed Jesus, he would transform everything about their lives, their thoughts, their desires, their wills, their relationships, and ultimately their very purpose for which they lived. So Grace Fellowship, the disciples didn't need to be convinced to go, they were desperate to go. 
And having been forgiven for their sin and soon to be filled with God's spirit, they would give their lives not to simply being disciples of Jesus, but to sacrificially make disciples of Jesus. And we know about Judas, but here we have 11 ordinary guys, yet they had been saved and changed by Jesus. They were called out of the hardship and occupation of the Roman Empire, but they went on to fight a battle, not with swords and chariots, but with the good news of the arrival of the kingdom. And so, church, this passage says we need to have eyes that see compassionately. We need to have hearts and minds that pray urgently. And we need to have hands and feet that go obediently. And you might say to me this morning, Pastor Steve, Good to see you're a passionate Newfoundlander and you're all wound up this morning. But I'm so afraid to tell others about Jesus. It's not that I'm ashamed, but I'm timid. I'm very fearful of screwing it up. I'm, I'm one of the world's most timid evangelists. It doesn't naturally come to me. I want you to know you're not alone. I know I'm an extroverted extrovert. My mom used to say that Stephen can make friends with a rock. And that is me. But I find it just as difficult. I don't want to just offend people. But remember, we're not living this Christian life without opposition, but we're also not living it without hope and power. To be a compassionate, praying, commissioned, missions-minded people will require something. And this is why I asked you all those questions at the beginning. Here's what I want to ask you. Have you experienced the gospel personally? I know this is probably the weirdest thing to ask a church like this, a well-known church with well-known pastors in our country, but are you actually a Christian? Or are you simply very conservatively religious? Are you trusting the gospel wholly? Are you obeying it fully? Is the song of amazing grace not just well-known and emotional, but can you say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And do I quote Carson again, who apparently didn't say this himself, but we are simply beggars who have found food and want to tell other beggars where to find it. God told Paul in the Ephesus, I have much people in this city. Paul's calling was to trust God with a determined focus to share the gospel over and over and over again and then to rest. So, Grace Fellowship in Toronto, you don't need to fear men or women or the culture. You don't need to be concerned about what to say. You don't need to get caught up in the results. You don't need to worry about messing up. You have to have compassion and pray and then say, Lord, I simply want to tell my friends, my neighbors, my co-workers, my children, my siblings, this is what Jesus has done to me. I am not endorsing Mark Driscoll, so please let me put that caveat in here. But there is a video on YouTube that I often found fascinating where Mark Driscoll, the, uh, Deepak Chopra, and some other guy and this woman who runs a ministry in Las Vegas literally named Hookers for Jesus. And her ministry was to rescue women in the sex trade of Las Vegas and win them to Christ. If you watch the videos on YouTube, it's actually 10 parts. Driscoll being the classic, sarcastic, cynical guy he is, biting. Him and Deepak Chopra and this other guy, they just go at it. They just argue theology and they drop these little one-liners and they're going at each other. And you can tell this poor lady is not as theologically astute as everybody else. And, and the rest of the guys are very condescending to her, even Mark Driscoll. And I love it because at one point she looks at both all three of these men and she goes, I don't know my Bible like you do and all this, but I do know what it, ha what it is to have a man sit on my chest choking the life out of me and crying out to Jesus. And I know what it is for Jesus to spare my life and forgive me and save me. And I know what it is to know that he's my savior. And it made the room still. Now that's not an excuse for theological ignorance. It's a reminder that compassion and prayer fuels obedience. And we will see God work. So, we are called to be examples of Jesus Christ. 
How? By our compassionate love for each other and the lost. And then we are called to pray. May I ask the most obvious question? Are we? Ezekiel 22.30 says, And I sought for a man among them, and who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me in the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. You know, it's often I am reminded of Abraham when he kind of bargains with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. And I've often found myself saying, Lord, surely there's got to be some people in the city of St. John's that you're going to save. So please, please use us. But then we are to go. We are commissioned to go with God's full authority and power. That's what he gave these disciples. And because of compassion, he has put on our hearts. We must remember that every person in this room who is a Christian is a missionary. If we call ourselves Christians, we are disciples of Jesus. Friends, even the world can't help but get this. I love it when movies often try to deny God but can't help themselves but bring human need into their relationships. Do you remember the Marvel series of of movies? And remember those two uh, uh, Marvel characters, Black Widow and Hawkeye? It always fascinated me because what drove them, whenever they talked, they say, I've got a lot of blood in my ledger. And they were trying to do all these good things because they wanted to get the blood out of their ledger. And that, you know what, it makes me small because that's the world trying to figure out the problem of guilt and justice. But Jesus comes along and says, I've paid for all the blood in your ledger. And now I've washed you in my blood so you're white as snow. And so we now are motivated not out of guilt, but out of love. We're not motivated by, by guilt and emotional things that we've had at missions conferences. No, we are motivated because God will do to others what he's done for us because he chooses to take the foolishness of us and show the Lord work in our lives. I know about this because, again, I close with I'm not just a salesman. I'm also a client. I want you to realize that sometimes compassionate prayer and a commission to mission can start at home. For many of you, you're meeting me for the very first time. I'm 50 years old, and I think I look pretty good. A little overweight, but pretty good. But I'm an only child. My parents got saved two weeks apart when I was five. When my parents got saved, they wanted to save the world. So by the time I was seven, we had 12 foster kids living in our home. They turned our basement into a school for those that were mentally delayed. And you name the disorder or the dysfunction, I've lived with it and suffered at the hands of it. So by the time I was 14, I had been stabbed twice, beaten regularly, Sexually abused from 7 to 13. And by the time I was 14, I was angry. I informed my father that I was done with Christianity. He could do his church thing. I would do my life thing. My dad was a pastor at the time. He said, Stephen, I love you, but if you're going to live in my house, you've got to obey my rules. So I stuffed a garbage bag full of all my belongings and left. Went to my neighbor's house. Her name was Joan Crocker. I knocked on her door and said, Dad, kick me out because I won't go to church. And I saw that she was about to spin me around, kick me in my rear end, and send me back to Dad. So I knew I had to opt the ante. So I said, oh, and Dad beats me with a stick. Which was a lie. My dad spanked me. But this woman took me in. I was on a Saturday. On Monday morning, I was before the Department of Social Services, spinning a story of child abuse about my dad, his church, my Christian school, and the church that ran it. It blew our family to pieces. Everybody took a side. People questioned my father's fitness for ministry. He got death threats from the community. His house was egged. His mother yelled and screamed at him, and my mom's sister, my aunt, took me in and told my mother, I will do what you and your Christian cult cannot do. I will raise your son where you failed. Truth of it was, in about three months, I wore up my welcome with my aunt. After about five or six months, I became a ward of the state, 
No foster home would take me in. I was under 16. And so I was headed to the Whitburn Boys Detention Center because nobody would take me. In a miracle of God, as I couch surfed from place to place, a family at my home church, which was a very legalistic independent Baptist church, took me in and said, you can stay here for a few days. We only have two rules. You must keep curfew and you have to go to church. Now, I cannot impress upon you how independent Baptist this church was. And I had been away now and I had not cut my hair for months because at that point in the mid-1980s, a TV show called Miami Vice ruled the airwaves, and I wanted to be this guy named Crockett, who was played by Don Johnson. So I showed up for the first Sunday in a half a year at my very legalistic independent Baptist church with a beautiful, beautiful mullet mane and a bright yellow double-breasted shirt with a pink T-shirt and white one-inch leather suspenders and white patent leather shoes with no socks. And I thought I was cool. The pastor had been away on vacation because the truth is if the pastor had known, I would not have been allowed to attend church that day. He would not have let me. As only a sovereign God could do, the first time I've ever been in a church in over six months, the pastor shows up and he preaches on the prodigal son. And before he could say, let's bow our heads in prayer, I was running to the front. Now, I won't get into all of how that church responded because it wasn't well. But I ended up at home at the people that took me in and I asked if I could use the phone. And I called my father and my dad's a very formal man and I got taught this. And so when he answered the phone, he went, good afternoon, Bray's residence, Wayne speaking, how may I help you? I know it's a big handle. I hadn't seen or heard from my father in half a year, and the only words I could say was, Daddy, I want to come home. And my father said, sit still, Stephen, I'm coming to you. He lived about an hour and a half away, and I sat on the corner of my bed in that room and did what every normal son who's been this rebellious, I kind of did a cost analysis of my behavior. I wondered, you know, how long would I be grounded? Would my dad ever let me get my license? What's going to happen to me? And what seemed like an eternity, I heard my parents pull up. The window was open. I heard those Charlie Brown adult voices down the hall. And then I heard these steps. And my father opened the door. And here I was with this long hair. And having lied about my father, he was investigated by the police. He had been embarrassed. And he walked in and he fell to his knees and put his arms out. And he said, Stephen, come to daddy. And I fell into his arms, and I have never cried before that or since like I did on the shoulder of my dad that day. And I tried to apologize, and my father once again beat me to it when he said, I'm sorry I failed you as a father. And he then dedicated his life to rescuing his son. My father is 77 years old, still pastors, a little tiny independent fundamental Baptist church, still loves his King James Bible, and I still tell him he's wrong. But my father would tell you that he never slept. He fasted and prayed and never slept for one week after I ran away. And God told him, and my dad is not charismatic. I don't want you to read into this. My dad said through reading and praying and fasting, he just had this sense that God said, Wayne, I will give you your boy back. And it took months. And I don't know where you're at, but you are not going to have compassion for the GTA if you can't have compassion in here. You will not have compassionate for blaspheming, cursing, and swearing sinners if you can't have compassion for your wife or your husband or your children or the pastor that failed you or the church that turned on you. As Jesus, one commentator says, transformed their minds, they became convicted that people needed to hear the gospel. As Jesus transformed their desires, they longed for people to hear the gospel. As Jesus transformed their wills, they were compelled to give their lives proclaiming the gospel. As Jesus transformed their relationships, they loved God enough to share the gospel with them, even though it cost them everything they had. Jesus transformed their very purpose for living. 
Every disciple was sacrificially committed to making disciples and the trajectory of their lives was never the same. So Calvary, or Grace Fellowship, what about us? Daniel Dickert said, the Great Commission is not the great intention. Be a doer, not an intender. Christians waste their effectiveness for Christ when good intentions are not followed up with an action to go and preach the gospel. So, are you going to follow Christ's example of compassion? Will you humbly obey God's call to pray missionally? And will you hear the commission to be the answers of your own prayers and go? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, that's my king. He's my savior. I deserve hell. And he saved me. I deserve the anger and bitterness of my dad. And he forgave me. I deserve not to be in ministry, not to have a wife who loves me. But God has been so gloriously merciful. So how could I not want that for other people? What about you? Let's pray. Father God, I pray again desperately, as David Platt would say, may these people have heard a better sermon than I could preach. I pray that the words of your Bible have penetrated their hearts and not my stories. But I pray, Lord, that I can be a living example like the woman at the well. Come, meet the one who told me all about me but loves me. Could this be the Messiah? Lord, I don't know what the needs are of the men and women that are sitting here before me, but Lord, if someone needs to know you, may they feel the courage and the uncomfortableness to cry out to you. Lord, if there are Christians here who have found themselves with a tired perspective or a lazy complacency towards compassion, a tepidness in prayer, and an unwillingness, Lord, they're willing to maybe give money but not do it themselves. Oh God, would you stir up the hearts and men of this people, starting with the leadership and working its way through the entire church. But ultimately, Lord, would you help us to see beyond our present as if this life is as good as it gets. It's not. We live for something so much bigger and more powerful. And may you get all the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you, church.